Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live. I am your season six host, Marisha Reese. This season is from Empower to Me Power BIPOC Leadership Conversations. I'm so happy to have you here on this journey with me. And in case you missed it, this season we're talking about some of the unique challenges that BIPOC leaders face, especially in dominant group spaces and how they use their innate power, that me power, to thrive. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, Dr. Terrence Harewood. Dr. Harewood is a principal strategist of cultural competence and intercultural communication with the Winters Group and a program chair for the Winters Group's Empowerment Institute, our leadership certification program for BIPOC. He is an experienced diversity, equity, and inclusion executive coach, trainer, and organizational development strategist. For over two decades, I know you can't tell because he doesn't look older than two decades, but for over two decades, he has and continues to innovate unique approaches to facilitate changes that have added to the bottom line and enriched the cultures of the institutions he has served. Dr. Harewood is a native of the beautiful island of Barbados, West Indies, and has engaged his extensive DEI expertise globally, including in corporate education, government, and not-for-profit sectors. He is a contributing author in the book, Racial Justice at Work, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change, with his chapter, A Developmental Approach to Racial Justice. So welcome, Terrence, to today's podcast episode. I did want to, um, to further introduce ourselves. I'd like to do our I am statements, which you know that we often use here at the Winters Group to highlight our intersecting identities and the lived experiences we bring to the conversation. So I will model it and then invite you, Terrence, to introduce yourself that way as well. Absolutely. I'm a Black cisgender, able-bodied woman, a zennial, which is the cusp of millennial and Gen X, an introvert, but you all keep getting me on this podcast, so I guess I'm coming out of that, a wife, a daughter, a sister, a dog mom, and a current Southerner, but was born and raised in the Northeastern United States. Terrence, will you share your I am statement with us as well? I would be happy to, Marisha. Um, I guess I'll start by stating the obvious. Um, I am Black, um, oftentimes referred to as tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also, as a result of having this Blackness, oftentimes also subjected to racial stereotypes and um, epithets as well. Um, I'm a survivor of abject poverty. I'm a first-generation college graduate um, in that process, earning myself a PhD which allows me to become a knowledge worker. And by knowledge worker, I, I mean, um, my work is dependent upon my mind, which is a privilege that I'm, I'm recently acknowledging because it allows me to work remotely. Um, and I definitely don't take that for granted as many people because their work is connected to their bodies and uh, uh, they have to be tied to a particular physical location. I also um, am a United Statesian of African and Caribbean ancestry. Specifically, as you mentioned, I am from the beautiful island of Barbados. I like to boast, it's the most beautiful island in the Caribbean. <laughs> I, am <Great>. a, <laughs> I am a native English speaker. I am Christian. I am a father. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm a loyal partner. And I, Marisha, am still under construction. 
<laughs> well, aren't we all? Well, I can't, I shouldn't speak for all, but I am. Too. I'll speak for myself and say I am as well. Thank you so much for that um, beautiful introduction, Terrence. So you share a little bit about yourself, but I want to get, so you know, as we're, we're talking here today about leadership specifically and BIPOC leadership. So can you share for our listeners today a little bit about your story, just your background and experience in getting into leadership? Mm, thank you so much, Marcia, for that, that question. That is a that is a very interesting question. Um, I think in part because oftentimes when we think about leadership, what comes to mind is the formal titles that we hold, such mm -hmm. as the president of this or the vice president of that. Um, I like John C. Maxwell's way of thinking about this. Um, he defines leadership as the ability to influence others. And I guess from that perspective, I guess in some regards, I've been a leader since childhood. <laughs> when, that is, uh, when I received uh, discipline for being the ringleader, if you would, <laughs> uh, when I was assigned captain of the to lead the Barbados track and field team, or when I was assigned to be the assistant editor of a, of a newspaper, or even during my 19 years of, of, of being a professor at various universities, um, when I led groups of students to trips abroad, or I led different committees or, or task forces, um, all of these, I think, constitute experiences that, that I believe prepared me to be a leader. Formally, um, in addition to leading my own business for the past uh, about 16 years or so, um, my most recent formal leadership role was as an interim vice president with the Winters Group. And all of these experiences have been very, 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 very important to helping me to think about the role of leadership and how, um, you know, how I can influence others in a way that, that really make a difference. Thank you for that. And I really love how you lifted up the, it's not always about formal titles, because um, I do think a lot of times we forget about that and that you can display leadership in many different ways. So thank you for um, lifting that up. I wanted to ask you, so throughout the years, you know, working at the Winters Group, we've worked with many clients who often tell us that they're, we can't find diverse or BIPOC candidates to fill the leadership roles. So we always, you know, when we get higher and higher up in organizations, we tend to see less and less BIPOC individuals up there and they, and they, they just claim that they cannot find the candidates. And I sh I'm sure that you probably heard the same in your work with us at the Winters Group and within your own um, consultancy. So. When you hear things like that, or what is your response to that, or how do you even, you know, think about think about that and what they're really maybe saying? Yeah, I would say that that myth has been significantly debunked in many regards. Right? Um, honestly, I would say it is not necessarily a supply gap; it is an opportunity gap. Mm. I mean, it is clear and clear and clear from the research that um, it's not that there is not a su sufficient supply of BIPOC leaders, but it's essentially um, what is it that the, the organizations are doing to really create opportunities? So that's one question I would ask is, what are these organizations doing explicitly to create opportunities for BIPOC leaders to develop the requisite skills that would allow them to break through these, these barriers? For example, what are you doing to create mentorship programs for aspiring BIPOC leaders? How are you creating workplace conditions for BIPOC leaders to thrive? Fourth, my example highlights various ways by which explicit leadership development programs can help support BIPOC leaders, 
such as, for example, right, providing valuable time and access to current as well as future leaders. One of the things that we know is that the reality is sometimes that, you know, folks try to deny this, right? But that, that there's a truism that essentially it's not what you know, but it is who you know. Okay. So one study found that only 31% of black workers report having access to their senior leaders compared to 44% of their white counterparts. Other research also tells us that even when Blacks have access or minority folks, uh, or I should say white folks have, have access to, um, <laughs> to, to, to white leaders, um, the white leaders are oftentimes reluctant to give them feed forward in fear of not offending or saying the wrong thing or because of their own inherent biases. Um, and so these types of, of, of experiences inhibit Blacks from having opportunities to to thrive and to move up in organizations. So it's not it is not a, a gap, right? In terms of like the, the available um, right. pool of BIPOC leaders, but it's what are you doing to actively, intentionally create opportunities for for blacks to thrive in the organization? So now you may not know this, but you know I often call you the cultural competence guru, and so um, you know what you're sharing now is having me think too. And you you said this a little bit as well that you know. So what do you, what do you think is missing? Is it their lack of cultural competence, not knowing how to, or they did, or is it more because I know people that I'm more comfortable with people that look like me that think like me, so I'm going to gravitate there as a, as as a person to mentor? Or what do you think is that, what is creating that gap, so to speak? Yeah, cultural competency absolutely has a lot to do with it, right? Um, and part of what how we operate as human beings is, yes, we tend to be comfortable with people who share the same identities that we have, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the reality is that for, for many, many people, including uh, especially white leaders, right? Um, what they see as leadership reflects their own stuff, their own self-awareness, their own values, their own beliefs, because our culture influences the way how we value, how we believe. So if I value these particular characteristics, then when I'm looking for a leader, essentially I'm going to, I'm going to look for a leader who values or who embodies those particular characteristics. And so I think part of what is missing is and important as we think about a of creating spaces for BIPOC leadership is that it has to start with leaders changing the way how they look at things. Mm -hmm. I love that image by, by uh, I guess it was Stephen Coffey who said, when we change the way we look at things, the things that we look at will change, mm -hmm. right? So if you look, if you want many use, right, it, uh, then you'll see the, 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 the uh, <laughs> I guess the character or the picture of leader, leadership just being the same over and over and over. But if you're willing to look outside of that and specifically to recognize the values, the assets that BIPOC leaders bring, as opposed to looking at them as deficits, mm -hmm. then you'll be able to see a change in the C-suites in organizations around, yeah. around the country. I love that reframing. Yes, I love that. Um, my next question I have for you, Terrence, is what do you think might distinguish the ways that BIPOC individuals lead versus dominant group individuals? Absolutely. Thank you, thank you so much for that. And I, I want to make sure that I'm clear here um, that it's not about essentializing and saying that there is a an essential, you know, 
way of, of leading right. that that's, right. that's significant to BIPOCs as opposed to um, ways um, of, of folks who, um, who are part of the dominant culture or primarily white in this country. Um, but what we know from research is that BIPOC leaders, specifically those who have a healthy relationship with their cultural identities, mm. oftentimes bring assets from their cultures and from their communities that allow them to bring a sense of meaning, a sense of joy, a sense of connection, and oftentimes very unique perspectives which they bring from their own lived experiences that allow them to lead differently. Mm -hmm. So research, for example, suggests that that our identities help us help to influence our values, um, our belief systems, um, and ultimately uh, how motivated we are to do the work that we, that we do. So these things can impact the relationships that we develop, the networks that we choose to be a part of, and the skills and the behaviors that we ultimately in, in, um, embody. So BIPOC leaders, by virtue of their lived experiences, many of them who are, again, self-aware, who have healthy relationships with their identities, are oftentimes able to draw from the collective strengths of their, of their, 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 their groups and their communities and mm -hmm. bring that as part of being their, their authentic selves to work. This allows them to make meaningful connections with people who are, are not only part of their own groups, but also for, for folks who are part of the dominant culture. In fact, there was a very interesting study that was done, I believe a survey done in, in 2019, that suggests that when BIPOC leaders lead organizations, that not only BIPOC folks, but white folks are oftentimes feel more satisfied and they feel like their company is much more equitable and provide opportunities for equitable opportunities for, for people to, to thrive and survive. So this is there's there's some real benefits to this. Um, mm -hmm. And also there are some unique ways. Um, so again, thinking about one's identity, right, is not is not unique to BIPOC folks, but having a clear sense of identity and connection is something that's more common um, because when you're part of the dominant culture, oftentimes you may not recognize how your identity pers mm -hmm. uh, positions you to, 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 to experience the world in a particular way. Um, so you're more than likely to see that with BIPOC folks, which shows up in how they lead. Mm, that, was, that was deep and good. And you know what I was going to say, Terrence, you always come through with the studies and the quotes and the... I, I'm like you just a walking encyclopedia. <laughs> well, you said that earlier, you're full of knowledge. So um, I do appreciate you sharing that. Um, it's very insightful. So we talked about this a little, but I wanted to see if there was anything more that you want to add regarding the role of culture and cultural competence plays in how people lead. So we we it's already been tied into what you've been answering, but I didn't know if there was anything more that you wanted to share around that before. Um, you shift a little. Yeah. So, so there are at least a couple of facets of that that I would like to share, right? Um, one is, um, so basically, I believe that intercultural competency is about our capacity to function effectively within the context of cultural differences and similarities. It requires us, as we discuss so often, a sense of self-awareness, as I mentioned earlier, also an awareness of others and a skill set to be able to bridge across these differences. So John C. Maxwell talks about leadership as, again, he mentions this thing called the law of the lid. From his perspective, leadership is about influence. And if I'm a leader and my lid is only to a level five, 
I can only influence people up to a level five, mm. right? And so he suggests that if we want to increase our influence, we have to increase our lit. I think about it similarly in terms of like an intercultural lit, <laughs> right? Yeah. We, can, we can only lead people up to our level of intercultural competence. If my level of intercultural competence is only at, at a level three, then I can only live, lead up to level three. So I need to increase my capacity to be able to lead, right? To understand the complexities of differences. Um, one of the ways that this shows up, right? Is my ability to be empathetic. And I can, I can be empathetic when I am, you know, drawing from the Winters Group 4E model, when I am exposed to people who are culturally different from myself, when I've got some experiences, some lived experiences connecting, right, with people, understanding the way how they make sense to make meaning from their experiences. And also when I when I have some education around those differences. And so BIPOC folks, by virtue of having to live alongside others, typically, or work alongside others who are culturally different from me, are more likely to have that exposure. They are also more likely to have that experience reflecting and trying to think about. And so um, mm -hmm. therefore, they show up and they show up and they lead with empathy in mind, which is a very important, we talk about it as a soft skill, right? <laughs> but it is a really difficult one to develop. And, and so that empathy allows them to connect, right? Um, empathy, as, as Brene Brown talks about, is connection. Mm -hmm allows them to connect meaningfully across differences with folks, not only other BIPOC folks, but folks who are part of the dominant culture as well. I love that, the, um, the increase, increase our lid. And you said that was from John C. Maxwell? John C. Maxwell, John yeah. C. Maxwell one of my mentors, <laughs> unofficial mentors. <laughs> I love that. Um, So what do you what do you think is the value or what are the advantages of valuing different leadership styles that are culturally determined? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so th there's a, a framework that I just um, I just stumbled across a couple of weeks ago. It comes from Frances Fry. She talks about the trust triangle. Um, essentially, she describes these as critical components for developing trust, right? Trust is a very important aspect of leadership. If I don't trust you, mm -hmm. then, you know, it's going to impact a lot of things, right? Not only my relationship with you, but also in terms of like my willingness to, to, to give my blood, sweat and tears, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, and these three critical components is, first of all, uh, one, can I, can I see you as, as being empathetic? right? Are you empathetic? Do you have the capacity to see the world from the lens that I see it? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have lived experiences, right? If you don't have the capacity to, to connect because you haven't had that exposure experience or education, then it's going to impact my ability to trust you as a leader. The second component of that is logic and there are two components of this logic the first part is is the the sense of your logic right first of all um does it make sense the arguments that you're making how you're framing things is it something that that is meaningful that makes sense to me mm -hmm. and then the second part the third the second part of that dynamic is how you're able to communicate that so there's 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 also a, a cultural component to communication yeah 
some people are direct communicators, for example, and for them, it's about so oftentimes about task, it's about just getting to the point using all of these facts. Some folks are indirect. So the more interculturally competent you are as a leader, the more you can you can communicate in a way that that is meaningful to your audience, right? And then the third part of it is authenticity. How authentic you are. Are you bringing your full self? Are you are you who you say that you are? And if for me, part of that that authenticity means being able to to be aware of your own identity, mm -hmm. of how it, 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 it may garner you some privileges, or it might, on the other hand, cause you some to be a target, right? Um, if, you're, if you are not aware of my identity and the importance it is to me, and, and therefore um, how it might impact how I show up for work, um, then it's gonna be hard for me to see you as authentic. And therefore it's gonna be hard for me to trust you. BIPOC leaders, oftentimes are able to make these connections because, right, of, 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 again, the need for them and the work they've done around being their authentic selves to work, not masking part of themselves in terms of their culture, um, et cetera, right? Um, and so I think that the more organizations can get that, the more trust is built, the more productivity and the more successful organizations we'll, we'll have. So I know, you know, we're talking about BIPOC leadership and, um, you know, the Empowerment Institute is for, for BIPOC leaders or aspiring leaders. But you have me thinking, you know, just when you, as you talk about the awareness of identity and we know when we, and you've, you've, ta you've touched on this as well, that the dominant group is often not, doesn't think of their culture, think they have a culture and not aware of that. So what do you, so I just want to ask this question. Um, like what do you how do you suggest that they the dominant group <laughs> learns like start to think about their identity becomes aware of their identity because i still feel that well i'm gonna let you answer that and then i'll tell you why where i'm going <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah Whew. i think if i had the answer in terms of like how <laughs> that boy that 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 would be a ooh, i'd be a millionaire or more, more <laughs> Yeah, but I think that, you know, it is it is something that is critical, right? Um, because culture matters and we it positions us to experience the world in a very particular way. And so it's not something that's reserved for folks who have minoritized identities. Culture is something that folks yeah. from the dominant, dominant culture, they, they, they have as well, right? And so the more that they can become self-aware, the more it will increase their capacity to recognize, oh, you know, oh, I have a culture. And this is why I value this. This is why I look for these particular characteristics. This is why I behave, why I communicate. Oh, and now I can recognize also that others, by virtue of their differences, may have a different way of, you know, valuing, behaving, communicating, etc. And then I have to work on the capacity to be able to bridge across those, to be able right. to not only look for folks who reflect again the values behaviors etc that i possess but also to be to be able to see the assets and the value in others as well yeah i want to talk a little bit about um the empowerment institute that um we are we are launching and that um 
I had Mary Frances Winters on as a guest as well on this um, this season, excuse me, um, who is also your co-chair with you for the Empowerment Institute. And so I'm going to go back to what we just talked about. At first, I wanted to ask you um, how you feel the, the Empowerment Institute will help BIPOC to be better leaders. Yeah, thank you so much. I think so much of the messages that BIPOC leaders receive are framed in terms of, you gotta do this because you have these deficits, you gotta do this so you can fit in. Mm -hmm. And I think the Empowerment Institute, one of the beautiful, valuable things about the Institute that it really promotes this idea that it is not about changing you so you can fit in. It's about supporting you in tapping into those assets that I described earlier, those cultural strengths that you bring so that you can stand out. And so there's there's so much in the program essentially that's that's designed to to help BIPOC leaders just connect with one another, to be able to listen to each other's stories, to be able to to recognize, whoa, this thing that I didn't really think about before, this is part of my strengths, right? One of the things, for example, that 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 comes up in this in the research is about the motivation, right? That oftentimes BIPOC folks bring to their work, and so they're motivated because it's not that I'm doing this just because I want to I want to get paid. I'm doing this because I want to make a difference. I want to I want to I want to I want to make a difference. I want to combat these these challenges in society or in, that are impacting my community. And, and another thing that, that shows up is, and, and, and reflect in this program, is this, this shared wisdom, this shared understanding that, wow, I recognize that as a leader, I have to do this because I have to, I'm, re, I'm representing my, my collective, my community in many regards. And so the Empowerment Institute is gonna provide space for leaders to be able to, to learn, to share, to connect, to coll collaborate, to celebrate, to experience the joy, to, to, to share the pain that they might be experiencing collectively um, in a space that's oftentimes not afforded for BIPOC leaders. I'm so super juiced, super excited for, for this program, Marisha, because um, I've, I've seen the design, I've seen the content, um, I've seen the passion of the presenters, um, I've seen the, the work, I've felt it myself, and I uh, and I, I'm super juiced to be able to spread this love um, in this in this important program. Yes, and we are super juiced that you will be that you are a part of it and will be doing that. And I um, shared with Mary Frances Winters as well that I wish I had a program like that um, a few years back as well. So what I want, so the I wanted to go back to what um, so the folks are going to go through the institute mm -hmm. and you know potentially go back to a workspace with this non-self-aware dominant group leader ahead of them. So how, I mean, within the Institute, I, I understand our the, our goal of the Institute and, you know, not wanting to fit in and, you know, just trying to recognize that we, you know, being authentically ourselves and um, not, you know, trying to fit into the dominant culture and all that, but in the reality or in the reality, they're going back to a space potentially where it's still going to be the same. So their leaders, their dominant 
or white leaders are not necessarily going through a simultaneous learning. Maybe that's phase two of our program. The leaders have to go through something else as well. But I'm just wondering your thoughts on, you know, they've gone through this institute and all of this, and they go back into this space with a leader that's not self-aware, not recognizing or appreciating their culture, has not, you know, had um, the lived experience, has not educated themselves and all of that. Mm-hmm. And they, they just feel like, well, I'm still just stuck in this same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that question, Marisha. Um, we're not naive um, in thinking that, you know, by just virtue of just going to the program that they'll go back to spaces that will be, you know, absolutely transformed, right? Um, but I think what um, what will be different is who they are and how mm-hmm. they show up and how they respond to these conditions, mm-hmm. right? And so, for example, um, part of this program is going to equip leaders, BIPOC leaders, with the capacity to be able to communicate more effectively with power, right? Uh, to communicate not only in terms of their own values, but also to be able to communicate um, in terms of you know, when there's conflict, right? Um, in ways that, because they have this deeper understanding now of the, the rules of the dominant culture, the rules of corporate culture, the rules of the C-suite culture, to be able to navigate that much more effectively, right? And with much more tact and much more, more power. There are some who might realize, you know, now that I have gone into this particular context and gone through this program, I'm realizing that my vision of leadership mm-hmm you know, um, outgrows my current organization, my current role, um, and they may seek opportunities elsewhere. Um, And the reality is that, um, you know, as I said before, leadership is influence. If you're going back to a space and you are showing up differently Mm -hmm. um, and you recognize, you know, I can't change people, but I can invite them, right? And if they see all of this joy, all of this passion, all of this the skill that you're exuding, then the choice they'll have to make, they'll have to join you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or stay stuck. But you get to influence still, you know, either directly in terms of having a formal position, but also or, or otherwise indirectly, because you can also serve as a, a, a motivator for others who, um, who may have had um, the, the same miserable experience before, but now who feel like, wow, um, look, he's coming back to this space, but he's still exuding so much joy or so much passion or she's exuding such, you know, such such excellence. I want some of what, you know, what you have. And so um, you will still influence in a way that may not necessarily be in a formal way, but definitely also based on how you show up differently. Yes, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. And my, um, as we wrap up, I have a question. So as you know, this season is Empowered to Me Power. And um, we defined me power in our trailer for this season. Um, and Mary Frances Winters kind of coined that for us, I guess I'll say. So she you know, didn't really like empower. And I know we have the Empowerment Institute, which is fine. But mm-hmm. when you think about empower, it means, you know, someone is giving you the power. So mm-hmm. we want to be able to you know, give ourselves the power. We don't need someone to give us the power necessarily. So that's what the, the me power, um, how that, that came to be. Mm-hmm. So. I wanted to ask if you had a me power story, or in other words, in what ways do you hone into your innate power? You know, Marisha, thank you so, so much for that. Um, 
and this is a long story, but I'll try to make it as succinct as possible. <laughs> I'm <laughs> here know, all day. I'm here all day. <laughs> part of my experiences growing up in a in a British colony, right, um, was to deny my the role of my my race essentially or my history, right? Um, I I was not directly thought much about my African ancestry. There are many people in my culture who believe and oftentimes would deny being African. Mm. Oftentimes see themselves as being more British. <laughs> um, and that was the perspective that I I held when I came to the US. I felt like, oh, you know, uh, based on my, my learning, racism was a thing of the past. There's no racism. They're just people who, um, who, who had bad personalities right? People who, <laughs> people who were just mean. They're just individuals. So I didn't understand fully the system of racism. And one could say then I didn't necessarily have a healthy racial identity. Um, I took a lecture from, uh, from, from a scholar by the name of, of Joanza Kanjufu out of Chicago um, that really shifted my perspective. He helped me to understand how colorism shows up mm. and how it was impacting me even growing up in my own family as the only dark-skinned child where mm. I was, you know, again, where I was subjected to some significant racialized experiences, right? All along learning that there was no racism. I had um, some very, very interesting family members. One, for example, told me, get away from my child. You want to turn him retarded like you because of my dark skin. And I had no way of naming that as racism, okay. right? right. Um, but is it, is it, that was important for me um, because the way it showed up for me as a leader is that I, I oftentimes did a lot of stuff that I felt like I had to resist all of these stereotypes. I had to make sure that um, if they say black people were always late, that I had to be super early. And what happened for me, Marisha, is that I, I succumbed to oftentimes described as stereotype threats. I remember, for example, that um, you know because of that particular stereotype, I would I would get to the office at six o'clock on you know, every morning at 6 a.m. I was the first person on campus, right? Because I didn't want to be perceived as the black professor who was always late. My class was at eight o'clock. So I would be two hours early, first person on campus. And can you believe, Marisha, that quarters of eight, it's time to head up to class. I start to grab my things. All of a sudden, you know, I'm like, where are my keys? Where are my notes? Where's my computer? I would actually sabotage myself. I end up getting to class late anyway. Mm -hmm. It took me having to kind of just reflect on those, right? Um, having to really think about the ways that I was showing up to basically conform to an image of the dominant culture. The ways, for example, that I would play nice, that I would, I would, I would mute myself the way how I would suppress part of my identity because I wanted to make my students and other faculty folks feel comfortable, right? And so part of my me performance story is how I had to let that mess go. In mm. fact, right now, I don't even want to be called nice. <laughs> nice why? because I am I am, I am, am <laughs> making you feel comfortable or I, I'm right. communicating or acting in a way that's consistent with your expectations of me, right? Uh, and so I get the, <laughs> the challenges with that, but, um, and so, so my me performance story required me to become more self-aware, to recognize ways in which I was, again, suppressing important aspects of myself in order to make, make others comfortable. And I, you know, I believe that I'm a much more effective leader today as a result of, of, of that me empowerment. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, thank you. I really appreciate that. 
So Terrence, we are coming to the end, but before I close this out, I did want to ask, is there anything you wanted to share? And you're like, Marisha did not ask me this and I was waiting to be asked this so I could share it. Is there anything before we close out that you wanted to um, state or leave leave us with? I, Marisha, I might've shared this before. I'm just gonna double click on it because I am so super excited for the folks who will be part of this program. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to being in community, to build relationships, to learn the stories, um, the pain, the joy, um, to watch the, 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 the relationships that are going to be developed, the knowledge, the skills that are going to be developed, right? And the, the continual mentorship. There's so many things I'm super excited about. Wonderful. We are, well, I am super excited. We are all super excited about it and cannot wait for it to happen. And I thank you so much, Terrence, for being here with us today on the Inclusion Solution Live podcast from Empower to Me Power. The, this conversation has been rich and fruitful and I've taken lots of notes on my, so that's what I was doing over here. I don't know if you're like, why does Marisha keep looking down? It's taking all the notes, all your, um, your, your statistics and different quotes that you shared were very, very helpful. So thank you again, Terrence, for joining. And that thank is you. a wrap. For this episode from Empower to Me Power. Please join me next time as we further explore the differences that make a difference when it comes to BIPOC leaders. And until next time, stay me powered. Thank you. Thank you.